The Brian McClanahan Show, episode 300. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to The Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to The Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter at Brian McClanahan. Like my Facebook page at Brian McClanahan. And of course, subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast at Brian McClanahan. You can find all those social media accounts at my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N, mcclanahan.com. While you're there, give me an email address and I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders. Uh, I do send you emails. Depends on what's going on and how often you get an email, but um, you do get that free ebook out of it. So it's a good thing to do. Also, you can support the show by going to mclanahanacademy.com. It's always free to enroll at mclanahanacademy.com. When you enroll, you do get a free course as well, 10 Myths of American History. Either you can click on that course after you enroll, or you can wait for it in the email and then enroll that way. And those that do enroll do get the best deals on forthcoming courses. I've got a new course out right now, The American Presidents. If you had already enrolled a couple of weeks ago, you would have gotten the best deal on that course. So I have more courses coming out this year. So you're going to want to get in on a McClanahan Academy and get those best discounts. I've got uh, now I think it's nine courses available for purchase. So it's a great way to support the show and get something awesome out of it as well. And this new class, American Presidents, is 47 lectures, 15 hours of material on every single American president. And I say American Presidents because... Uh, there's one extra in there that's not uh, uh, often considered American president. But anyways, you've got all of that. Uh, you can also go to Learn True History, T-R-U-E, LearnTrueHistory.com. That's my affiliate link for Tom Woods Liberty Classroom, another great website, over 20 classes. People are looking for ways to self-educate during coronavirus. So you want to get out there and get McClanahan Academy, Learn True History, uh, it's just fantastic. You get all this material. So if, if you're a parent now, everyone's a homeschool parent now, and you're looking for material to use, you may not want to use the government-sponsored curriculum. Maybe it's an opportunity that you haven't had before to try to explore some other stuff. Get these other courses. I mean, this is great stuff. So uh, don't be uh, don't be shy. Go out there and do it. Now, also, you can support the show by going to uh, brianmcclanahan.com forward slash support. You can throw a few pennies my way, help keep the lights on, help keep the podcast going. Also, don't forget to get your Brian McClanahan Show gear. Just click on that shop tab on my page. You get your my logo and all kinds of cool stuff. So lots of great ways to support the show. All right, well, let's talk about the topic of the day. It's very hard to talk about much of anything else besides coronavirus, but I'm not going to do that today directly. Right? I mean, this is, you go to just about any website on the net right now, any news site, any politics site, it's coronavirus all the time. And uh, I think people are getting a little tired of this. Of course, we're all shut in now. And there's several states that have issued lockdown orders, several cities that have done this. So people are sitting in their homes. They can't go anywhere. They can't do anything. At least it's thought that way. Now, the police are going to start having to enforce these things. I've seen that police are now enforcing social distancing and other things. I mean, this is, we're getting into... I mean, dystopian territory here. I I don't think, I think, you know, 50 or 60 years from now, people are still going to look back at this point and say, this is a real turning point in America, this Chinese virus situation. It really is going to be 
uh, considered to be one of the major turning points in American history, one of the major events in American history. I know people look at the Spanish flu of 1918, but most people don't even think about that much anymore because, you know what, life didn't really change a whole lot during that time period. There were no quarantines, lockdowns. People did try to do social distancing and try to avoid people. I mean, these things happened. In my own family, my grandfather lived in a root cellar during that time period because uh, in Nebraska because they were worried about catching the Spanish flu. And my, gra- my great-grandmother actually nursed people in Nebraska there where they lived, um, trying to get people back up to health. So there, there was a public health crisis in 1918, but business went on as normal. I mean, people still continued to do things. And that probably contributed more to the death toll from that Spanish flu, which was extremely high, right? So that particular pandemic, was there was not a reaction to it like there is now with the Chinese virus. But I think that's why this is a real turning point. And I'm going to talk about the Constitution today because uh, people are pointing to the Constitution and saying, well, that's unconstitutional. You can't do that. The general government can't do that. Well, the dirty little secret is the Constitution has been dead since 1789. The ink had barely been dry, and it was already destroyed by the first Congress. It was destroyed by the Judiciary Act of 1789, when it allowed for a direct appeal, essentially, of state court decisions to federal courts. In other words, once you made it through all the levels of the state courts, you could go to the federal courts then. And the worst particular case of this was the Cohen's v. Virginia case, where they just skipped the state courts altogether and went right to the federal courts. That was illegal. The state of Virginia had made that illegal. And the Cohen's brothers did it anyways. This had to do with a lottery and selling a lottery, um, which was illegal in the state of Virginia, Two Maryland residents sold a District of Columbia lottery in the state of Virginia, and the state of Virginia said, you know what, you can't do that. They fined them, and they said, you can't appeal. This is it. It's your last line of appeal. Now, um, we could say, well, that's that's injustice, but at the same time, Virginia could do these things. Now, the federal courts said they can't. But this was a major issue. What can the federal courts do? What can the state courts do? So, I mean, the, the Constitution has been dead since 1789. And, of course, people are talking about, well, you know, we've got the general government now issuing all these orders. I think Trump has actually been fairly realistic on what the general government can and cannot do. He's relying on the states to go out and decide what kind of policy should be followed at the various state levels. And we've seen wide swings here in some states to another. But how come the states can do this? I think that's a question people are asking. And, I, and I'll point to a debate, debate, quote-unquote, I had with the Nimrod on social media um, about this. It, was, it wasn't about the U.S. Constitution. It was actually about the Confederate Constitution. And he pointed out uh, a, a part of... Um, Article 1, Section 9 of the Confederate Constitution, where he said that the Confederate Constitution said that states cannot abolish slavery. And he pointed to a clause in that. And of course, it only applies to the general government. As everyone understood it to mean, it only applies to the general government. And one of the things that 
it says, of course, it's the ex post facto part of the Confederate Constitution, which was lifted almost directly from the U.S. Constitution, with the exception that the Confederate Constitution explicitly states that the general government cannot abolish slavery, which was the exact same thing for the U.S. Constitution. The general government could not abolish slavery. This was understood. The general government couldn't do it because it was not one of the delegated powers under Article 1, Section 8. And everyone in the U.S. government knew that. So the Confederate Constitution just expressly stated that it can do that. On the other hand, he says, well, this cl clearly shows, because it doesn't say the states, it doesn't say Congress can't do this, so the states, this, this applies to everything. Well, then why would they put Article 1, Section 10, where it says the exact same language, except it removes the slavery part of it? You see, if it applied to the states, it wouldn't have listed the same thing in Article 1, Section 10. I mean, this is just, this is just ridiculous stupidity on the part of the American public when it comes to the Constitution. I mean, we are constitutionally ignorant. And I think if most Americans understood the Constitution, we wouldn't see as many things happening in D.C. We might, because I think Americans have generally come to just believe that the government should do everything. I don't know. Maybe maybe I'm wrong about that. But certainly I think we might have a different view of the Constitution. Of course, we've thrown the Constitution completely away with this massive what mount amount what might amount to a six trillion dollar bailout. And as been pointed out, you can spend all that money, but what are people going to buy? I mean, we're pumping money into the economy. And yes, people can go and then pay their mortgage or pay their rent with this money. If you make under a certain amount, you can go do those things with this cash. I mean, that's, that's okay. People are going to need to be able to do that. On the other hand, banks are also getting bailed out in this thing again. And it has been brought up. I mean, if we're going to do this, we're going to bail out the banks. Why don't we say that people don't have to pay their mortgages for three months or four months? You just don't have to pay that. Instead of sending people a check, just say you don't have to. If you're going to take this power that you're taking, that you're usurping, and you're going to do these things, we'll just say people don't have to pay their mortgage. Well, that's like a bailout then. I mean, if you had, if your mortgage was, you know, whatever it is, if you're in a, a, a an area where your mortgage is very high, I mean, maybe, you're, maybe your mortgage payment's a few thousand dollars a month, or maybe you're in a, pl a place where your mortgage is only a few hundred dollars a month. I mean, who knows? But if you didn't have to pay that, this money back in your pocket, you don't have to worry about that, why you've lost your job or are facing severe economic distress. Instead of sending someone a check and the banks get it, and you're also bailing out the banks on the back end, see who's really getting the money here? It's the banks. So why not just say, well, you don't have to pay those things right now. The banks will eat it. Um, I mean, these are, these are real questions that aren't being addressed because nobody's seen the bill. Nobody knows what's in the bill. Okay, so John C. Calhoun pointed out this would be the case all the way back in the 1830s in his disquisition on government when he brought up that, you know what the real problem in America is? It's executive government. It's executive government because what's going to happen is the party out of power that's not in control of the executive branch is going to whine about the Constitution when they're not in power. When they get in power, they're going to completely abuse it. Now, think back to when Barack Obama was in, was in office. The Republicans whined incessantly about abuse of power. The Constitution is not being followed. We've got executive government. Now that Trump's in power, well, who cares about that? And the Democrats are at least open about it. They've never really cared about it. 
except when they're trying to impeach Trump okay, because they don't want Trump there. It's it's an abuse of power and all these things. I mean, this is just ridiculous smokescreen nonsense because you're looking at the ultimate abuse of power right now and nobody cares. And nobody cares because we're facing this uh, public health crisis, which, which has morphed into an economic crisis because of the entire shutdown of the United States. So no one cares about power. However, as I've said, at least Trump has been more receptive to the idea of federalism here because he has relied on the states to do most of the heavy lifting when it comes to enforce lockdowns, uh, the health the healthcare response. I mean, all this has been left to the states. The general government is pumping out money now to try to get things into these states. Amazingly enough, though, people are coming up with millions of masks and all kinds of things. Where was this stuff? I mean, if we've got, if we're going to centralize everything, well, where was this stuff? And of course, the response and testing and other things has been substandard for the United States, though. Uh, I think that thousands and thousands of people have been tested. One encouraging sign was that, of course, Texas had about 800 cases last time I saw, and they've tested nearly 20,000 people. They only have 800 cases. So we are going to see an explosion. I think the the virus is going to explode. We're already up over 85,000 cases. Of course, when you look at that compared to the entire population of the United States, the United States at 320 million people, we'd have to get to... Um, a, a 3.2 million people just to get to 1% of the population. 3.2 million people just to get there. So we haven't even gotten close to half of 1% of the population yet with the coronavirus. So, I mean, it's we're still at very small numbers. It looks really high, and of course, the Chinese numbers are skewed. You can't, you can't rely on what the Chinese gave us as an actual number because it was probably much higher than that. They just didn't let anybody know. So we've got this state public health response, a state response when it comes to powers and what the states are doing with the coronavirus and all of these things. We've got all of this stuff, and where is the constitutional authority for any of it? Well, it's there at the state level. And people have questioned, well, how are these state powers unlimited? How, how is that the case? I mean, and I've addressed this before, but I actually want to answer this particular question of federalism today by discussing a really good book on it. Now, I, of course, have written a book, The Founding Father's Guide to the Constitution, where I went into this topic in detail. I just saw the other day that that particular book is very hard to get now. It's, it's out of print, both paperback and hardback. I don't know why. Uh, but it is. And now you can get used copies for pretty cheap, but if you want a new copy, you're going to pay a pretty penny for them. So um, unfortunately, that's the case. But there is a new book out. It's a self-published book, but it's it's really good. And it's a collection of essays on the Constitution by the Tenth Amendment Center's Mike Mahari. And uh, I really like it. Of course, I wrote the introduction for the book, so that shows you I really like it. But I want to focus on one particular chapter of Mahari's book, and the title of the book is The Constitution Owner's Manual. Subtitle, The Real Constitution the Politicians Don't Want You to Know About. It's a really good book. Um, and I want to focus on a particular chapter of this book to dis discuss this issue of federalism and how this works with the state. So I'm going to take a quick break first. I'm going to come back. I'm going to talk about the Constitution Owner's Manual and federalism. I'll see you in just a minute. Let me talk to you for a minute about McClanahan Academy. I know at the beginning of this particular podcast or 
this video I talked about McClanahan Academy. But let me go into a little more detail about why I think you should sign up for it and why, and why I created it. First, a little bit about me. I have a PhD in American history from the University of South Carolina, and I've taught in the college environment for 20 years. And I've seen college students get worse over time, the curriculum get worse, and students are being indoctrinated more than educated now in our higher education system, whether it's high school or college. So I wanted a counterweight to that. And this is why I created the McClanahan Academy. Now, first, it's always free to enroll at McClanahan Academy. You sign up. It's free. And I give you a free course, 10 Myths of American History, when you do sign up. So it's a great way to get an introduction to what I do. But I've got eight courses for sale there and more forthcoming. All of these courses are designed to give you the non-PC version of American history, to take the red pill, so to speak. And I've got two courses in particular, my U.S. History Survey courses, which are designed for homeschoolers. So if you're a homeschooler and you want a good curriculum, and uh, my family has homeschooled all of our children from the beginning, and you want a solid history curriculum, that's why I designed the United States History 18, to 1865 and 1865 to the present. You've got enough material, you've got lesson plans, you've got uh, tests, you've got reading material, you've got reading seminars, You've got 36 weeks, if you take them, buy them both, you've got 36 weeks of material, and it can be used as a high school history curriculum. Or if you're just a lifelong learner, you can use it otherwise. But it's a great way to get a real history education devoid of Marxism and progressivism and political correctness. So sign up at mclanahanacademy.com. That's mclanahanacademy.com. Again, always free to enroll, and I'll see you there. All right, we're back talking about federalism, the Constitution, what it means. We're talking about the Chinese virus and, of course, all the lockdowns and everything that's happening with that. So I want to get into this chapter in Mike Mahari's Constitution Owner's Manual, and it's a really good chapter on federalism. It's entitled The Nature of the Federal Government. So I'm going to read a bunch of this here. Um, and, of course, I would, if I did interviews, I'd have Mike on to talk about this. So I'm just going to let Mike speak for himself through the chapter. Right? We're going to go through uh, this particular chapter and talk about some of the arguments in favor of state powers and this limited nature of the central government in relation to the states. And this is why the states can do these things. And the arguments that were made for federalism during the ratification of the Constitution. So. He says, to rightly judge the extent of federal power, we must first understand generally what type of government the Constitution created. Is it powerful or weak? Is it expansive or limited? How much authority does it wield? Can it act in any situation or does it have a limited sphere? How you answer these questions will shape your view of American government and guide your understanding of every clause in the Constitution. During the Philadelphia Convention, many fra framers favored a strong national government. In fact, James Madison even proposed a federal veto on state laws. But as the convention wore on, delegates voted down proposals to create a centralized government one by one, including Madison's federal veto. The Constitution that, the constitution that emerged excuse me, from the convention created a general government with a few defined enumerated powers. The Philadelphia Convention reveals much about the framers' intent, but we find the true meaning of the Constitution in the ratification process. It was there that the people consented to the new system. By studying the debates, we come to understand exactly what the people thought they were consenting to. 
The voters in each state were an important part of the ratification process. They elected representatives to conventions convened to approve or reject the document. The debates in the state conventions illuminate their understanding of the Constitution at the time and thus reveal the original meaning, as I discussed in Chapter 1. As you recall, James Madison affirmed this view of constitutional interpretation in a letter to Henry Lee. Quote, I entirely concur in the propriety of resorting to the sense in which the Constitution was accepted and ratified by the nation. In that sense alone, it is the legitimate Constitution. And if that be not the guide in expounding it, there can be no security for a consistent and stable more than a faithful exercise of its powers. This is important, I mean, to understand that the ratification process created the meaning of the Constitution. As Madison says, look, if we can't look to that to understand what it meant, then what can we use? Well, we've gotten to the point where it's the courts, where it's some politician standing up and saying, well, I know the Constitution. I mean, of course, Nancy Pelosi, of course I know the Constitution. How dare you ask if I know the Constitution? I know the Constitution. They don't really. They don't care. It doesn't matter. It only matters what they say this means. And, of course, the way that the general government generally acts today in terms of the Constitution is exactly what the states can do when it comes to the Constitution. They've adopted the British model for American constitutionalism. That is, you pass the laws and let the courts sort it out. Now, the states generally can do this because, in many cases, the original state constitutions had very few defined powers at all. Now, as we've written new state constitutions, the idea was to restrict those powers more and more. But when you look at the original, for example, there were several New England states that just continued the colonial charter as the constitution. Well, all that did was say we have a government. Okay, so we have a government. But what can that government do? It didn't say it can do whatever it wants. This is why the argument was made that these states can do just about anything they want. Now, as we started to see written state constitutions, and I've said this before, as long as the state law does not violate the state constitution, well, it can do whatever it wants. So states then adopted Bill of Rights. They started doing things to restrict the powers of the states. But otherwise, their powers are unlimited. This is how the process of federalism was sold to the states, and Mahari gets into that in this particular chapter. He says, many Americans misconstrue the ratification debates, assuming those favoring the Constitution, the Federalists, advocated a strong central government, while opponents, anti-Federalists, wanted a weaker general government. In fact, everybody, or, in fact, virtually everybody agreed, excuse me, at least publicly, that the Constitution was intended to create a limited federal authority, leaving most power to the states. The actual debate revolved around whether the Constitution as written would create such a limited government. The Federalists insisted that it would, while the Anti-Federalists expressed deep fear that it would not. Now, one thing I made clear in my Founding Fathers' Guide to the Constitution is people aren't really Federalists and Anti-Federalists. They're proponents and opponents. They're Nationalists and Federalists. The Federalists are really Nationalists in many ways, at least in Philadelphia. And the opponents were actually Federalists. They wanted a real federal system. Now, when we get to the ratification process, it's, a, it's opponents of the Constitution and proponents of the Constitution. Because as Mike points out here, everybody really was saying the same thing. We want a government that has limited powers. The proponents said it does. It's a government of limited powers. The opponents said, no, no, it's not. Look at all these horrible things it's going to do if we just put this thing into place. And of course, they've been proven correct. In fact, the interesting thing about this 
is that Joseph Story used the arguments against the Constitution to prove the Constitution created this massive central, centralized bureaucracy, this massive centralized state. Joseph Story flipped the debates on their head, and this is why Joseph Story is so dangerous. He said, yeah, you're right. The Constitution did create a centralized government. Look at what the opponents of the document said it was going to do, and that's what it exactly did. That's what it does. Now, of course, he misses the reaction to that, and everyone's saying, no, 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 it's not going to do that. It's not going to do that. He misses that part. But he flips the Constitution, the, the, the ratification of the Constitution, on its head. Now, I get into some of this in my How Alexander Hamilton Screwed Up America, the class on that at McClanahan Academy, the class on American constitutions at McClanahan Academy. I discuss these things there. But it's important, to, if you don't have those, I mean, these podcasts are free of charge, so this is my public service. <laughs> so I get into more detail of that there, but let me continue. Mahari says, The Federalist Papers are the best-known source of Federalist arguments. Published in New York newspapers, these essays written by John Jay, James Madison, and Alexander Hamilton laid out key arguments to support ratification and give us a strong sense of how proponents sold the Constitution to a skeptical public. Think of it like sticker tape inside the window of a used car. Madison made the clearest case for the Constitution's limited nature in Federalist number 45. This is probably the most one of the most famous of the Federalist essays, 45. And he says, quote, The powers delegated by the proposed Constitution to the federal government are few and defined. Those which are to remain in the state governments are numerous and indefinite. The former will be exercised principally on external objects, as war, peace, negotiation, and foreign commerce, with which the last the power of taxation will be, for the most part, con connected. The powers reserved to the several states will extend to all objects which, in the ordinary course of affairs, concern the lives, liberties, and properties of the people, and the internal order, improvements, and property of the state. So this is when we get to the current situation with the Chinese virus and what the state governments are doing. They're affecting the lives, liberties, and properties of the people of the states. And this is why they're saying they have the authority to do these things. Now, if it does not violate the state constitution, you could look at the state bill of rights and say, well, wait a second here. Can they do these things? Now, I think out of an abundance of caution, people should be trying to quarantine themselves, to work from home, to do as much as they can to avoid getting this coronavirus. Because, again, from all intent, from all you know, information out there, it's a pretty nasty thing. You don't want it. Nobody wants the flu. You don't want the Chinese virus. You don't want it. So try to avoid it. It's very, I mean, so these things are common sense. And I mentioned this in a previous episode of the Brian McClanahan show, that how the libertarians to respond to this is taking the ultimate individual objective and saying, you know what, I'm going to do this. I'm going to protect myself and my family, so I'm not going to engage and do things. I'm not just going to go out and run around and say, I'm, a, I'm free so I can walk around. Well, that's pretty stupid if you think about it, if you're going to get the Chinese virus. So protect yourself. And also, the thing you can do is create an independence in your life. And this is something I talked about in the previous episode. Create independence in your life. And therefore, you don't really need all of these things, all this government stuff. The government's telling you what you can and can't do. And I mean, this is what people really think. They can't do anything unless the government tells them something. And most of America believes that. But if you're already independent, it, it doesn't really matter. Of course, James Wilson, he continues, and I'm going to skip down a little bit because he gets into the State House yard speech. 
Um, this is the first public speech on the Constitution that was made after it was signed in September of 1787. The State House Yard speech is October 6th. So we're about three weeks beyond the signing of the Constitution. And James Wilson goes to the State House Yard, which, of course, is the Independence Hall, that's what we call it today. He makes a speech there, and he says this, quote, It will be proper to mark the leading discrimination between the state constitutions and the constitutions of the United, of, of the United States. When the people established the powers of legislation under their separate governments, they invested the representatives with every right and authority which they did not in explicit terms reserve. And therefore, upon every question respecting the jurisdiction of the House of Assembly, if the frame of government is silent, the jurisdiction is efficient and complete. But in delegating federal powers, another criteria was necessarily introduced, and the congressional power is to be collected not from tacit implication, but from the positive grant expressed in the instrument of the Union. Hence, it is evident that in the former case, everything which is not reserved is given, but in the latter, the reverse of the proposition prevails, excuse me, and everything which is not given is reserved. So what he means by that is, look, if the state constitution doesn't say you can't do it, you can do it. But in the general government, if it says you can't do it, if we don't say you can do it, you can't do it, right? So if the state constitution says you can't prohibit free speech, that means you can do, if it's not listed in the Bill of Rights, you can do anything else you want. But in the general government, if it says, uh, here are your powers that you're given, that's all you can do. That's all you can do, unless it's prohibited somewhere else in the document. So when you look at the Constitution, and I tried to explain this to the knucklehead on social media, when you look at a Constitution, whether it's the U.S. Constitution, Confederate Constitution, it follows the same thing for the central authorities. It has certain enumerated powers, Article 1, Section 8. These are the things the government can do. Article 1, Section 9, these are the things the general government cannot do. Article 1, Section 10, these are the things the state governments cannot do because they're corresponding powers granted to the general authority. But that means the states can do everything else that's not prohibited to the states in the Constitution. So Article 1, Section 9 applies to the general government. doesn't matter whether you're talking about the Confederate Constitution, the state, the 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 uh, U.S. Constitution, it doesn't doesn't affect the state constitutions unless it's Article One, Section Ten, or unless it expressly states somewhere the states cannot do this, and that's why it says in Article One, Section Ten, states can't do this. There's a corresponding grant of power to the general government somewhere else in the document. Okay, so that's all that means. And of course, when you get to Article Four and other things, well, this again applies to the general government unless it expressly states states cannot do this. But when you look at these constitutions, whether it's the U.S. Constitution, Confederate Constitution, and where this means and where these powers are coming from, and this is why Federalist 45 and, of course, James Wilson's State House Yard Speech, and there's many other examples in this particular book. I have to emphasize, and I'm going to show it to you on the, on the camera here, a great book. It's really good. It's not expensive. Um, it goes through all kinds of things in here. I mean, he does a fantastic job. Let me just plug the book in some other ways, too. Um, he goes through all all the clauses, all the <laughs> all the clauses that have been used to abuse the Constitution, from the general welfare clause, the necessary and proper clause, the commerce clause. These are the sweeping clauses, as Patrick Henry called them. 
What is the judiciary? What does this mean by natural born citizenship, the electoral college, war powers, executive powers? He gets into all these things. In fact, he has a very interesting chapter of federal highway funding is unconstitutional. Throw threw it in there uh, because that deals with internal improvements and um, the unconstitutional nature of internal improvements. Full faith and credit, Bill of Rights. He gets into many of the important amendments. And, of course, um, he has at the end the Constitution, his amendments, the Virginia-Kentucky resolutions at the end of the book. So it's a fantastic book. But I wanted to focus on this one particular chapter because people ask these questions. Well, where does it come from? I mean, I'm looking at my state constitution. I mean, it's a constitution, right? So it, it has, but as Madison and Wilson explained and many others, Tench Cox, who's Mahari lists in there in that particular chapter, Tench Cox, I think, hits a home run when he's arguing for the constitution. Now, nobody knows who Tench Cox is, but he was a very important member of that founding generation. Um. All that stuff is listed. All the things are listed there as to what the general government can and cannot do and how the Constitution was sold to the states. If it was sold in any other way, the Constitution would not have been ratified. I think that's something that people have to understand. Now, one thing I, I want to wrap this up, I didn't mention before this episode began at the beginning. This is episode 300. I think it's a nice way to come back to the theme of the podcast, which is think locally, act locally. Because that's the core of this Brian McClanahan show. And this is the basis of it. First principles. So as we're dealing with this unprecedented situation in America, I mean, we've never seen anything like this before. A complete shutdown of the United States and powers of the central government vis-a-vis the states and powers of the state government. These are first principles. And these are things, very important things to understand when you're talking to your friends and family now via social media and other things about these particular issues. So if this is, if you've listened to all 300 episodes, this is episode 300, thank you very much for your time in doing all of that. If you're new, if this is the first time you're hearing this podcast, I've got 299 more before this that you can go back and listen to. And um, I do appreciate all the support. Again, if you want something in the show, send it to me. I've got a whole stack of these things that I'm, look, I've got time now, a whole stack that I'm going to get through. It's very hard to talk about anything else but coronavirus, but we have to get back to normal and do some things. So I'm going to do that for you. I've got a stack of requests. I'm going to start going through them. You're going to see it. Send me your emails. Send me your information. Send me what you want to hear, and I'll do it. I'll go through them. If I don't respond, it doesn't mean I didn't read it. Thank you very much again for your support for The Brian McClanahan Show. I will see you next time. (laughs) 